two or three more questions and mm-hmm. then we'll open up to um, no questions problem. from our team. For young people that are getting involved in activism recently um, and in science, what would your advice be to people looking to get more involved in activism? I think the main thing about activism, it's it, they call it activism. If you're an academic, they call it act- academic. <laughs> but if you're not a... Uh, uh, an academic, they call it activism, and it's nothing to be w- concerned about. My activism, uh, I, it only could be described in I try to make myself ready, and that means you cannot defend people or yourself if you have an interest in something. It means you have to be capable of defending it. Hmm. And defending it means educating yourself. Just talking emotionally doesn't work. And my, you know, you can, some people do harm with weapons and some people do harm with words. And therefore, to me, if I have taken on this responsibility to speak on behalf of the past, then my responsibility is to make sure that I am as knowledgeable as possible or else I'm being irresponsible. And the only thing why people now have given me a bit of focus, I said, I'm not very good, but I'm popular because I'm free or cheap. (laughs) 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 But you can't always assess your popularity. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The... Point is that um, I make sure that if you want to be an activist, whatever it's called, make absolutely certain that you are capable of defending the people you are out to defend. And that means reading, 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 checking, making sure that you are capable of doing that. So educating oneself and getting prepared to, to defend Be ready. everything you say. It's the scout's motto, motto <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Be prepared. Absolutely. Be prepared. And that is all it takes. It's hard work for some. Yes, sir. But it, it, it is... When somebody says something to me, like a top historian says, it was the French Revolution, I said, I've got a document here where Dundas says the French were rubbish. Hmm. He was no fear of the French. He was more fearful of the an African person, an older African person, mm. because they were likely to cause rebellions. Yeah. So Dundas was more afraid of African elders or elder people from Africa yes, than he was from the French Navy mm. or Army because these Africans were causing rebellion. Hmm. And he couldn't afford to have a rebellion like the Sharp Rebellion, you know, where the slaves went around killing people. And, of course, they hanged Sam Sharp in 1832. Hmm. So a lot of the Africans who caused rebellions were hanged, like Taki was hanged. Wow. Um, Bogle, this is post-slavery, Bogle and Gordon. Very Scottish names. Bogle is very Western. Scotland. Bogle. Bogle and Gordon fomented a rebellion in 1865. Mm -hmm. And they were both hanged. So Sharp, Bogle, Gordon, Taki, all hanged. 
for fomenting rebellion. Wow. So an activist, if you're going to be an activist, you've got to be ready to defend. Yes, sir. And the only weapon you have are valid words. Valid words. All right, sir. Um, on a slightly different note, you've been recognized with you know, numerous awards for your contributions to science and also to the society, a knighthood, mm -hmm. um, and also like several different honors. Mm -hmm. how, how do you define success and how has that definition changed over the years? Um, success to me would mean, um, you know, when I figured out the abrasion process, <laughs> To me, that is something which nature had been concealing. Mm. And I would see that. So it's a, it's a battle against nature. <laughs> to me, that's a, I'm not bothered about battles against people. <laughs> to me, that was a battle. And to me, that's about, that's about success. Another success is, you know, helping to persuade the council to change that plaque. Mm. And therefore, to me, success is about, again, changing an attitude in society, changing something which wasn't true for people to see the truth. And thus, the truth was also about the science. Hmm. So to me, success is about getting people to see what is true yeah. in nature. And if you can do that, you will find that um, that will be of some value mm. to people. In that little book over there, that's my little book. <laughs> it's called Serial Science and Technology. Wow. And I did that, I can't even remember when. <laughs> <laughs> but when I, was, I decided I would do it, I phoned some publishers. Yes, sir. And they came to see me in Edinburgh and they said, oh, you can't do a book without Americans or Australian writers in it. And I told them to go away. <laughs> <laughs> and they did. And I got Aberdeen University Press to do it. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know where Aberdeen was. <laughs> guy from Aberdeen came. <laughs> and we, we had a chat. The next thing that was done. Mm. And the reason why I mention it is in terms of what we were saying, this book is called Serial Science and Technology. And the irony is it's the only book now that can have that name. Mm. So there are loads of books which says History of Serial Science and Technology. <laughs> this of science, they cannot use Serial <laughs> Science and Technology. And in it, the strap line says technology is science that works. Technology is science that works. Therefore, I really believe that everything we do in life is science-based. When your car doesn't start, the science is wrong. Hmm. When your equipment here doesn't work, the science is wrong. When, in fact, a tree gets infected, the science is wrong. When an animal dies prematurely, the science is wrong. Yes, sir. And therefore, in fact... When you approach anything, whether you are doing history or um, whether it's science, it's you know, science itself. If the science isn't right, the technology doesn't work. Hmm. And therefore, to me, what we do 
And when we do it well, and when we do it effectively, then, in fact, the science is right. And therefore, too, the science is about the information you have that is right, mm. because that will produce the results you want, or will produce results that will tell you what the reality of the situation is. Sir. The reality of the situation. And that's the approach I've used. Whether it's in history, you've got to have valid evidence. And whether in science, you've got to have valid evidence. And as far as when I advise people, if you read anything, read the methodology first. First, read the methodology. And if the methodology is faulty, don't read anymore. <laughs> Pointless. Pointless. The methodology tells you what the person did, how they did it. And you can tell from that the validity of their conclusion. Mm. Dodgy methodology, dodgy conclusion. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> and therefore, to me, that's the advice I would give yes, sir. To, to people who want to help our society, make sure you're ready mm. and make sure you, res you research and make sure the information you have is correct as possible and then, in fact, use that to defend the situation. Yes, sir. You cannot defend it with emotional by just saying, that is wrong, so, you know, you should change it because a lot of people will say, so why do you think it's wrong? Hmm. What evidence have you got for it being wrong? So if you're going to defend people, you've got to be ready. Yes, sir. And your weapon is evidence, valid evidence. Absolutely. And moving on to the last question for no myself. Um, speaking about books and subjects of books, one of the questions that we like to ask our guests on mm -hmm. the show is this. If your life story was a book, mm -hmm. given your experiences and dreams and um, values, what will its title be? <laughs> well, we were just talking about I <laughs> so that's very appropriate. Um, uh, I would probably have what that would put. Um, um, education works. That's what I'd like the title to be. Education works. Works, that's right. Thank you, Sajef. It's been okay. such an honor. We'll open up to questions now uh, <laughs> from the guy from Odi Henry of Blessing, if anyone has any questions. So, um, Sajef, with my question, I would love to go back to the time when um, you were in the institute, you were okay. working in the institute. And it was really inspiring to hear, you know, the, the, the goal you put forth for yourself and how you fought for your, for your research, for, for the findings you made. And I would love to maybe hear a further reflection on all those, those processes because you were able to put yourself on the line in that sense mm -hmm. in order to push for something innovative that could be wrong, mm -hmm. right? And thinking about it, I feel like you could also have been gone the other way and just, you know, go through the process that where you don't have to put yourself on the line yes, to just do the usual everyday business Absolutely and right. not, you mm -hmm. know, not take the risk. So I would love to hear you reflect or 
talk more about that and maybe give some advice to young people okay. who are, you know, minorities in the workplace, who okay. are, you know, Africans or black people mm-hmm. working in organizations. What advice would you give now in in taking risks, right? In, yeah. in putting ourselves on the line, okay. what would you say? Well, I think that's a very good question because that's exactly what my boss had, had said, that when he, he came around and realized that I had this idea, he said, what you should do or should be doing is this. And he wrote down, and what he wanted me to do was just to analyze routinely a whole bunch of samples. So they were getting in samples every year from all over Europe. And he just wanted me to analyze for um, this chemical. So all it would mean is grinding up the grain, putting it in a machine, reading the results, writing down a number. And I would be doing that all day, every day. That's all. And he said that was the alternative he gave me. And I decided I wasn't going to have that. <laughs> I, I said to him, no, I would. I'm going to, I've got this idea. And I think it will work. And, I, and I've got valid evidence for it from my PhD. And therefore, this is what I want to pursue. And, of course, it would have been easier because if you've got a family and all you're doing is that, analysing, then it's safe. Your job is safe. No risks, no arguments. You know, uh, there were advantages to it. You, you are taking no risks. And I think it's something now, maybe in certain jobs, you don't have that choice. You'd have to do what he says. But if you're in a situation like I was where I didn't have to do that in a sense, but I had to take the risk. And I think that if you're working anywhere and you're in that situation where you are, you could, because it it could be deliberate. You're just being given something that you will never get into senior management if you continue to do that. Then you have to speak to your boss or speak to the people around you or whomever or even go to your boss's boss to actually say, you know, what I've been asked to do is is not valid or it is almost designed to ensure I make no progress and that what I'm doing is, behind, is below my capacity. You know, in a way, you if you can convey that to the powers that be, now, there is a danger there, and I'll give you now an example. So an actual example. Um, Edinburgh and the Lothians, they contacted me some time ago, a few years ago. And it, 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 the name of the person is Mrs. Suleiman. Um, and on her Google website, you can pick her up. Because she actually comments on this work. So Edinburgh and the Lothians, NHS, no less the NHS, contacted me to say they did not have a significant representation of black and ethnic minority people in management. And they would like, they don't know what is wrong, 
why this is the case. So, um, I spoke to Mrs. Sullivan, who is the contact. She's still the diversity person at this sector of the NHS. And we discussed it. And I said, part of the issue you're discussing is about um, uh, system consciousness. Because the failure is occurring at the interview. These people are qualified, doing their job at the highest level, but they are not seen as management material. They always fail at the interview sector. Now, why is that? And I was saying that what you need to do is to set up a course where we're dealing with as one aspect of it must be awareness of system consciousness. And these are two words which I have in my little book, The Enlightenment Abolished. There's a copy of it there, the red one. No, no, it's behind you. If you look, Little River, that one, the finger is on it, yeah. That's my book called The Enlightenment Abolished. I, it's something I just kept writing when I felt like it. I haven't done it for two years. Um, um, no, it's the other one. Is that, is that the same one? Oh, yeah, that's it. There are two there. Yeah, so I did, I've done that over a little while, and I just call it the Enlightenment Abolished <laughs> Citizens of Britishness, and I just kept adding things to it, which happened. So it's got my, some of my life story in it, and it's got some of what I'm going to say. But there's a little sector in there where I refer to the, this, just two words, system consciousness. And I said to the NHS, that should be in the training. And what I mean by that is understanding the expectations of the system. And the system has got to understand your expectations of the system. Both. And so we set up a course. And within three years, we went from four managers to 25. Or within that sort of figure. So we went up by, you know, for, say, by about 20 um, so why is that? Why is it taken all this time? Because the people who were going for the interview did not understand what they're being interviewed for. They didn't understand the, the attitude they should adopt for that interview. And what it is judged that that BAME people do not understand, they can't manage. So it's like them being inferior again. They cannot manage. And when you speak to them, they show that they can't manage. <laughs> and what I'm saying is that that has nothing to do with their potential to manage because they are not aware what the expectation of the management are. <laughs> and in the same in Nigeria, um, somebody who wasn't born in Nigeria, even though they're Nigerians, would have difficulty understanding the expectations of what is the Nigerian management system demands of you. So it is cultural ignorance. It is not ability. And I'll give you now an example of a young man who, a black guy who was very good nurse, very good at his job, but he, he, he wasn't progressing. Did bad at the interviews, etc. So I sat him down and I said, look, um, 
And the other way around is that the management, if you go with a, an accent, and certain people have accents from certain cultures, and certain accents are perceived as aggressive, when somebody's speaking English from their language, no, that is perceived as not management material. Because if you've got an aggressive accent, how are you going to manage people? They'd be confronting you or afraid of you. But then that's just an accent. It's not your attitude. So again, there's a prejudice from the board. But in terms of the young man who was responding, he, um, uh, he, he was, they regard him as not being appropriately dressed for the interviews. Or his attitude to dress was not appropriate. And they couldn't convince him that as a nurse he had to dress in that form or if he's going for an interview he should then look more appropriate at that interview whatever the appropriate means and he said to me well why should I I said I'm a good nurse I'm doing the job what has got to do with how you dress got to do with the work you do and the only way I could convince him was I said okay you're on a plane and we're, you're all waiting for the pilot. And the guy comes on in slippers, shorts, T-shirt, says, I hate flying, and smoking a fag, <laughs> and having a wee drink. And somebody, the door is open, and somebody, you then ask, who's the pilot? And they say him. <laughs> if you have a choice of getting off the, <laughs> off the plane, what would you do? <laughs> With your little young son or daughter, what would you do? Mm. You say, I get off. <laughs> I said, there you are, that's all they're saying. Mm. You expect the pilot to look a certain way. Mm. You're not judging his capacity as a pilot. But within the system, those are expectations. You expect the pilot to look what you think is a pilot. Mm. Now, the pilot might say, I'm a better best pilot in the world, the fact that I have a fag and a thing and wearing slippers and a shorts has nothing to do with it. And therefore I could then convince him with that analogy, which nobody would put to him because they either one didn't want it, didn't understand what that was, and thus he was in a difficult position uh, because of the way people around him act. So therefore, in terms of um, trying to help people to understand the system, to progress within the system, what I think the person has to understand is what is expected. And if they don't understand that, then you're going to get failure. And I think that is an important part. And in trying to motivate people and to try to get them ready or be prepared for those what I call interviews, then one could set up courses which deal with all aspects of that um, expectation. And when we got that right, as I said, the, 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 the strategy is still being used in different ways. But we managed to get 20 people into senior management 
which it seemed impossible to achieve. So it's nothing to do with ability. It's to do with making people aware of the culture they're in and what is expected of them. Does that, does that help? Yes. All right. Thank you very much, sir. It's been very insightful and I've learned so much and I'm in awe as well. <laughs> so um, what I was thinking about when you were speaking was that um, you are a man that has been privileged to live through different generations and different timelines of of this um, history that we have now. And so for you, given that you have lived these different timelines and phases of this whole debate for equality and um, access to opportunities and wider um, representation, how does all of this feel for you now seeing events unfolding um, I would like to say there has been a level of progress. Uh, maybe you could speak to how slow you think that progress <laughs> okay. has been or how rapid that progress has been. But just looking back and going through all these um, different timelines, how, do, how does that feel for you? Um, it's interesting. You're right. If I sit back and I can look at 10 years ago, because I retired in 2005, you know, so 10 years is still within my retirement. <laughs> you know, people have to say to me, could I contact your PA? <laughs> I said, my PA is me. <laughs> you know, I've got a paper diary somewhere in the house. <laughs> and I've got to look at it every day <laughs> to figure out what I'm doing. Um, but you're right, 10 years, I'd retired. Ten years before that, you know, I was in at work in 2005. Um, I was then um, traveling around the world still until I retired just then. So the world, you know, I, there were things going on in Nigeria or Kenya um, or Japan. I spent a, a short time in Japan. And that was like a different eight, 10 years because I was going to different countries within that 10 years. Um, and the 10 years before that, I was involved in um, the research where I was really trying to hold down my job by trying to be a great achiever. Because if they sack me, people would want to know why. <laughs> if I didn't achieve anything, then they could sack me and nobody would notice. And at one place I work, I won't say where, um, my boss called me up one day and he said, look, you know, Jeff, the world is against you. This was scientific. He said, the world's against you, this, these concepts you have. And why don't you just issue a rejection of everything you've said? And I said to him, do you know something? And he said, what? I said, you know, at one time, everybody thought the world, thought the world was flat. <laughs> it looks flat. <laughs> but it isn't. <laughs> and therefore, as far as my work is concerned, it's round and they think it's flat. So why should I change anything? I refused. Again, this was looking back. I think, well, couldn't have that today. 
you know what I mean? Um, which probably you could. This is the point that is somebody telling you the world is flat and you've got to accept it because of your position or you don't have the capacity to challenge it. There was another situation where, um, you know, um, uh, you know, somebody, another situation I was in where, where I was at work, somebody handed me a sheet of paper one morning I went into work. And they were saying, um, you know, why don't you leave the job? And I said, I hope you got a copy of that. <laughs> and he didn't. <laughs> and, um, you know, and we sorted it out. But... I was always in a position to challenge all of that in any era because of I was successful and the people out there knew it. So if they were going to carry through any of that, then that was a risk for them. And the sad thing is I was using what I'd achieved not my rights, legal rights. I was using what I'd achieve as the threat. I didn't know how it was going to work out. So what I had to do in life, as I said before, is to achieve certain things that somebody who is going to threaten me would have to have a very good case because they'd have to justify it. And even with my history stuff, and this is another era where a, a great professional historian said he was going to sue me. And then he was asked by the Times recently, are you still going to sue him? And he said, no, um, almost it's a waste of time because basically <laughs> I don't have anything. I told my family if they sue me, that's it, you get nothing. <laughs> <laughs> the point is that he then said he wasn't going to sue me and this is only months or so ago he's not going to sue me because he didn't want to turn a villain into a victim he actually said that in the Times <laughs> the point is that I take no notice of that because his problem is is that he cannot invalidate anything I say that is the point so I'm using the information I have, the information I've put out. That's my weapon. And it's rather sad that, you know, we are in a position where, and I'm saying this probably cautiously for the first time, that what I'm saying throughout my life, through all the decades, is that I somehow learned a long time ago, probably from my aunts, that people who threaten you, they are doing it because they think you're not in a position to defend yourself. So it's cowardly. And therefore, 
if you then put yourself in a position to defend yourself, it's the best thing you can do at, in any decade of your life or any situation. And people, as I said, who will try and threaten you or you feel concerned about is that they think aspects of what you are, you are vulnerable. And it's cowardly. They think they can damage you with no consequences. And thus, each time when I, was, when I arrived in the country, for example, when I, if you talk about the 50s, now what am I afraid of? I wasn't afraid of racism or stuff because I didn't know what it was. And people writing KBW, keep Britain white on the wall, didn't bother me because I, I just thought it was... I was more bothered about the men standing and stopping my mother and me getting to our house, which was up the road. We had to walk around the block. Now, that would terrify people today. It didn't terrify me because my attitude was, okay, I'll walk around the block. They're not going to kill me. So I had a different sense of defense through all those eras. And one of the defense I used during the early days um, was little boys or used to stop me. And they used to say, um, Mister, what time is it? <laughs> and um, they always did it when I was going home up this particular street. Because, you see, they were told, you're talking about 1957, they were told that black people can't read the time they they you know they 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 don't understand time and stuff so they were now making fun and I was aware of that so they used to come up to me and say what time is this mister now they expected me to look at the sun because that's what they've been told mm. that black people they look at the sun to tell the time so I would look up to the sun and, I, and, they, and they say, well, come on then, what time? And I say, quarter past three. <laughs> of course, they, they look at their watches. And it was exactly quarter past three. <laughs> and they kept doing it, you know, for, for ages. Every time I'd come by. And they'd say, what time is it? And I'd say, uh, quarter to five. And they'd look at their watches. How'd you do that? <laughs> what they didn't know, there was a clock. <laughs> 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 On the spire. <laughs> I was looking at the spire. <laughs> so there was a whole load of young children who came to adults who think black people can tell the time by the sun. <laughs> and they can do it accurately. <laughs> And, and therefore, to me, in life, you have to then adopt certain attitudes or certain approaches to deal with prejudice mm -hmm. and racism. It's, as you know, um, I used to say to my children, you can't go around with your fist up ready for a fight. The fact is that you should be able to defend yourself without having to put your fist up. And or put your fist up when 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 it, when you're ready. However, quite recently in a car park, 
So that happened in 1957. A month ago in a car park, a chap confronted me about, you know, parking and stuff. And, and he's going to call the police. And I said, well, do that if you want. Um, and I said I would welcome it. And then he said, um, <coughs> what's your phone number? <laughs> and I said, I'll do better than that. I'll tell you who, who my name. And I gave him, I said, my name is Jeff Palmer. And I, I, I live in, 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 in the village here. And then he Googled me. <laughs> and then he said, oh, that's okay. And he drove off. <laughs> he drove off. <laughs> and that's just recently. But the good end of that story is um, we met again recently. And he said, you know, um, <laughs> you'll not believe it. He said, I'm a Bob Marley fan. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He actually said that. And we discussed Bob Marley. And when I told him that Bob Marley was half white, he said, I never knew that. And therefore, we then shared Bob Marley because he didn't know. And I said, well, you know, and he was saying, and, you know, I have a problem with my health. And I said, well, what is it? I said, I've got health problems too. And he said, it's my cholesterol, you know. And I said, oh, cholesterol. Oh, um, you should eat porridge, I said, <laughs> because it's good for cholesterol. Because, see, I've done research on the gum in oats that reduces, can reduce cholesterol. So when you read a Kellogg's box and it says good for cholesterol, it's the oats contains a gum. And I've done research. My student from Nigeria, he's done work on that gum. It's in that thesis. <laughs> and therefore we were helping each other. I was helping him with the gum in cereals. And he was talking to me about Bob Marley. And we were talking about Bob Marley's heritage. And we perfectly, from amicable closeness as a hu human being, we started off with a confrontation in a car park. And again, there is every possibility that he, he saw me as reflecting somebody who he could speak to in that way. He felt I had no status, no position, but it shouldn't be that because he could speak to my mother. He should treat her the same way as anybody else. And therefore, people are still suffering from that prejudice. And it, no matter what decade it is, and even in the next decade, 10 decades to come, our system must understand that I spoke to some school kids a month ago in the city chambers and when I spoke to those children the teachers put on Twitter or contacted me by email and said 
the children said they want you to speak to them because you back up what you say. That's what the children told their teachers. I back up what I say. And what I said to them, one of the things I said, the way I put it, was we were meeting in the city chambers. And all the kids were there from different schools. And I, 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 I used the David Hume story. I said, when you're coming here this morning, you pass a big statue on the high street near the courts. And I said, people were rubbing his toes and stuff. I said, that's David Hume. And he said that niggers were inferior to whites. And I said, you see the building we're in? I said, look up and look at the magnificence of it. It's city chambers. I said, he said that in 1753. This building was built in 1753. He said it because the merchants who built this building were involved in the mistreatment of black people. And therefore, he was giving them an excuse <laughs> to mistreat the black people to get the money to build this building. And the children understood that. This nonsense that you can't tell children this history because it will upset them. We did a survey from the council's project, Edinburgh Council's project, where we produced 10 recommendations. And we surveyed the public and the response from the young people were the most positive, saying this history should be in the curriculum and you shouldn't take statues down from young people. And therefore, it is nonsense that you cannot tell people this history. Scottish people have said to me, why hasn't anybody told us all this before? And therefore, to change the attitudes of people over every now generation, every 10 years or whatever, we have to develop a strategy of informing them of this past. Because when people are reacting, you know, some of the police are reacting in a way because there's a myth there that they think black people are black men. You've got to go in heavier because they are stronger and more aggressive and more difficult. So therefore, you have that, if you don't understand that, you don't understand that's against you. So you react in a way that might just precipitate. Because that's the prejudgment. If you don't understand prejudgment. And just like the guy in the, in the car park, he obviously thinks that I'm going to be afraid when he says he's going to call the police. Because I'm not. Because I haven't done anything. So therefore, people are using things which they think from their prejudgment um, uh, is going to frighten you. You see what I mean? So 
these are producements and any decent policeman understands that that's not true anyway and thus we have to get that voice across that these people who think that are prejudging they are acting to prejudices which they've heard and thus you know the more information we can put out there uh, is, 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 is the better for everybody because if somebody's going to prejudge that you know you need firmer action to prejudge that if somebody tells you about the police, it's going you're going to give up your rights. Uh, you see what I mean? Then this hasn't changed over many generations. Mrs. Lawrence is still writing yesterday. It's coming up to the Stephen Lawrence's. I think it's about this time, Stephen Lawrence's anniversary. And Mrs. Lawrence was saying things haven't changed in terms of the attitudes towards... Um, black people and that is very sad but the work we're doing the work you're doing is, tr is trying to put it out there to say yes over the decades have gone things have gotten a bit better but then there is still this attitude which was there in slavery that black people are unreliable shiftless um, uh, dangerous <laughs> Um, and, in fact, can be treated badly because, basically, that's how nature made them. And believe it or not, that is still there, out there, and we've got to try and change that. And what people have said to me, we can't confront it because of our jobs or our position or whatever, and I think that's very sad, whether people are black or white. If they see something or hear something like that which is not true, and which is damaging in some ways, whether it's in the press or otherwise, then what I'm saying to people, some people may not be able to do it, but if you can, do. And some of us, we may have to stick our necks on the block. But nevertheless, that is the issue that people know that something is wrong but feel they can do nothing because it is against their interest. So things will improve, but it's got to come through um, education, but it's also got to come to, as again, I keep quoting Burns because as I, I know a bit about what he's written. And if you look in my hallway out there, there's a big plaque made from lead somebody from Glasgow gave it to me from a pub the Oran Moor and it's out there in the hall and it says goodness mitigates woe and iniquity is wrong it's out there on, on on my wall so the goodness to try and confront wrongs and trying to put them right is has lasted me from my arrive until now I can see it. The point is that you if you ask me what needs to be done, it's for good people to see a wrong and try to put it right.
that's what we need and it's been there for since 1955 to now but the good people that I've met have helped me and without their help I wouldn't be sitting here today mm. and they're not just the two I mentioned there's also the professor at London University he took me for my job in 1958 and my name isn't Jeff. <laughs> my name is Godfrey. <laughs> my mum never called me Jeff. <laughs> she kept saying, who's Jeff? Who's this Jeff? <laughs> and um, so m when I get official documents, that's Jeff written there and whatever. This is Jeff in my book. But if I pick up an official document from that table, it's Godfrey. <laughs> so when I get funds from the government, the tax or any of us, it's Godfrey Palmer. And I, my name became Jeff in 1958 <laughs> when I went for the interview at London University, Queen Elizabeth's College in Kensington. And I was sitting in a room like this and Professor Chapman walked in and Professor Chapman said, are you the young man for the interview, for the job? I was there for a job as a junior laboratory technician. It was when I left school in London in 1958. And I said, yes, sir, I'm the young man for the job. He said, what's your name? I said, Godfrey Henry Oliver Palmer, sir. And he said, Godfrey Henry Oliver Palmer. He said, can I call you Jeff? <laughs> and I said, okay. I said, if I get the job. If I, and he said, yes. And I said, okay. And ever since then, for no good reason, <laughs> I just kept calling myself Jeff. And no other reason for it. So when people, some people have said to me, why did you let a white person call you Jeff and you picked it up and use it? I said, it was no big deal. And I thought, Jeff, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Godfrey, in where I lived in Highbury, <laughs> sounded posh. <laughs> so I thought Jeff was appropriate for where I live. <laughs> And ever since then, I've been calling myself Jeff. The, the irony of that is, um, if you're confronting the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. I went there in 1958. Kensington is next to Notting Hill Gate. And I had to get off the train at Notting Hill Gate in 1958. And there were riots. Black people were being chased down and up the road in 1958. It was the time of the riots, attack on black people. Now, I still didn't see that as racist. <laughs> you know, it's just some bad guys chasing me. But I got off that train on my own to go to work. And I had to be careful because I had to keep looking. If a white guy looked suspicious, then I would walk away. So it was being system consciousness um, system conscious at the time so I got off the train at Notting Hill Gate the tube and I walked up to my work five days a week and I was helping my mother because we were being at times being evicted from our properties but we're paying half the 50% of money we earn sometimes was going into rent and the landlord gave us notice to quit and I had to go to court 
because my mom was praying and I said, praying ain't going to work. <laughs> we got to also be able to know the law. So I went to the library and I was checking the law of um, renting. And in those days, if you were part furnished, you're okay. They had some chairs and stuff. But if you were fully furnished, you're in trouble. Like a landlord could put you out. So I had to understand all that to go to court to defend my mother because the landlord turned off the water. In my garage, I can show you the bucket for your leave. I used that bucket to collect water from the neighbors for my mother in 1959-60. A bucket, metal bucket. I had got it and I was walking up over the road begging water because the landlord turned our water off trying to force us out. And But that made me late for work sometimes and whatever. And Professor Chapman noticed that because, you know, I was coming in, running, doing things and phoning my mother and checking on things like that. And one day in 1958, 59, 59, he stopped me, 59, and he said... Um, um, I want you out this building to go to university by 1961. That's when I went to Leicester University. And he insisted and he gave me a time off. Half day off when, when I needed it to go to the local polytechnic. And that's how I got my qualifications for university because I didn't get them at the grammar school. And, and when I applied to every university I could in 1961. They all rejected me because I wasn't an overseas student. I was a local black student from London, which they weren't used to. So when I said I lived in Bride Street, they just probably put it in a bucket. And just before the university time in October 1961, Chapman came into the lab and he said, which university are you going to? And I said, none, sir. And he said, you mean none? What do you mean by that? I said, well, I applied, but none of them wanted me. I got all the A-levels required. And he said, go, go to my room and stand at the door. And I stood at the door on a Friday afternoon. And he came out in about 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And he said, you're going to Leicester University. Good luck. He had telephoned and got me into Leicester with a telephone call. That's how I got into Leicester University. So when I arrived, I'd not even completed an application form. <laughs> so I arrived at Leicester in 1961 because Professor Chapman made a phone call. So again, he's a person without whom I wouldn't be here. And some people would say, why do you attack him for saying he's going to call you Jeff? He didn't tell me I had to call myself Jeff. Mm. I decided on that. So don't fight the wrong battle. Mm. Don't fight the wrong people for the wrong reasons. And I had a confrontation with him. Why would he phone and get me into Leicester? He got me into Leicester because he understood I was helping my mum with all the court cases. So he was aware of my difficulties without me saying a word. Mm -hmm. And that's the importance of your relationship with people. Mm -hmm. 
to understand difficulties without them having to tell you. And <clears throat> and the, the the good story of that is I went to Leicester in 1961. I graduated in 64. The end of last year, I had a letter from Leicester University. And um, the principal wrote, and they said, we have some good news for you. <coughs> I think I've got it. Bit of a cup. Um, the that they said we have some good news for you. I say what is it? <laughs> and they said, um, well, <coughs> we we're going to tell you that we want you to bring your family to Leicester. You know, we've got an event. And and I said, well, what the event? And they sort of vaguely, you know. Um, said it, but they had contacted me before to tell me I'm I was selected as one of the best, the university's best hundred graduates in a hundred years. Mm. That's one of the things they said. I was one of Leicester University's best graduates in a hundred years. It's their hundred year celebration last year, and that they did a drawing of me, and they also did a narrative of me and that was okay but this when we arrived at Leicester now to tell the story so I took my family down <coughs> to Leicester and I, they took me round to a building and there it was it's called Sir Jeff Palmer's accommodation it's a building the size of this road <laughs> did you not know that? Yeah, but I didn't go into detail. But this is what it is, and it's, it's on my phone. I'll show you. If you, if you just type, yeah, it's on my phone. Where I arrived at Leicester, a university I arrived at in 1961 on a phone call in 2022. The university had named an enormous building. Sir Jeff Palmer accommodation and it was wonderful standing there and looking at students of all colours walking in and out that building and they were walking past me they know who the hell it was <laughs> but I thought that was even better because I was standing there and students of all races and all colours and creeds and whatever standing there and because of Chapman making a phone call, got me there. So, again, we can change all that. If you can't do it yourself, we need good people who will see a wrong and put it right. And that's why I say what I say, and I say it in detail, because you can edit. The point is that that's how our world has got to work, because you can't do it yourself, and your children can't. The other day I sat out there and I saw a little girl run across the road and I couldn't get up my car quick enough and her grandmother had walked out the door and thought the little girl was standing with her mother. But she wasn't. And she just took off across the road. Had a bus a car come there. It'd be murder. And I kept tooting my horn just in case if a car was coming, they would hear a horn at least. Because I was strapped in and I couldn't get out. 
So good people, people <coughs> who will do something for you, even though you're not that, is critical in the way we live. Critical in the way we live. So that's an, another person. And that's the end result of that. You know, so that's my thing at, at Leicester. And of course, that's where I met my wife in 1961. And it's because I've I completely screwed up her bicycle. Because <laughs> I, I was, I said, well, I'm a, I'm a botanist. <laughs> Why do you get a botanist to fix a bicycle? <laughs> you want an engineer? <laughs> but we had no engineers in Haringey. <laughs> so, but anyway, I hope that, you know, answers, I give these long answers, basically, to pick out what you want. Because I think that people who sometimes, when they respond to things, they give a truncated story, and you can't really, the public listening, if you pick out the right bits, yeah. they can get a better feel of what I'm getting at. I could just sit here and say, yeah, I'm a very clever bloke and I did that and get those exams and I did that and I got to Leicester and I got this honours degree and I went to Edinburgh and got a PhD and I went, it wasn't like that at all. And it won't be like that for us for a long time. And it's not even like that for white people, much less for us. Because if certain people don't do certain things within the society, you would never, ever get to where. And if people are against you, you are in some trouble if you have no perception of it. Mm. So that is something I want to get across to people. We're not, you're not a um, self-made man or woman. Okay. So I'll let you do your question. Okay. <laughs> so can you hear this? Okay, so um, thank you, Sergio, mm -hmm. for it's been very inspiring listening listening to you and your story so far. But I think most of the questions I wanted to ask you've already touched on in okay. your answer to Ojinaka. But I would want to find out, like, what's what are you looking forward to? Like, I know you've still been very busy, even <laughs> after retirement, okay. with a lot of projects. But, like, is there a particular feat or project that you would want to achieve? And Good question, yeah. because at 83, <laughs> um, people would be looking at you and says you should be in an old people's home, because <laughs> that's what I used to be on the board of an organization that looks after, you know, older people. And thus, a lot of them are a lot younger than 83. <laughs> I think you went in there at 65. Um, so at 83, you know, you would be there. And I've been very lucky. You know, I've got little health issues, but so has other people. But in terms of what I'd like to achieve further, um, you know, in terms of I'd like the grandchildren to... To, to do well um, and one of my grandchildren it's lucky I lived this long grandchildren is now at Glasgow University um, he's entered and he's doing okay I'm told 
Um, so again, that to me is an achievement that um, I've got a grandchild at the university, which I never thought I'd live long enough to see. Um, and the, there are the, the others are doing fairly well, so they should get there. Well, I've got a grandson who's a very good footballer. He's in some Chelsea mm, young boys team, so he, he plays well. I don't know if he's... He doesn't play cricket, which I play. <laughs> if I... If I cricket got me to the grammar school, <laughs> so I didn't pass an exam. The headmaster wanted a cricketer. That's what he told me. <laughs> and I was good at cricket, so he had me transferred. But, no, I think wanting the kids to do well, but also hoping that we can get this history into the as a standard feature of the curriculum. I see our history as as important as mathematics, physics, chemistry, and it should be there. Um, um, warts and all, I don't want it truncated or manipulated um, where people think. I think that the horrors of that history, some people say we can't teach that. The point is, yes, we can, because it also tells people that if you do things which are unacceptable, they will be remembered. And they will be, your family and the people that come after you will have to bear that responsibility. And I think that's what I, I would want. Um, because we live in a world where people think there are no consequences to their actions. So I hope, other than saying my family doing, the, the grandchildren doing okay in life as best they can, is to see that the work we've done on trying to um, educate the public about this enormous event that happened in the world. I don't think anything else, I may be exaggerating, happened in the world as significant as this. I call it the most profitable evil the world has known. And therefore, this is just beginning to dawn on the world. Believe it or not, the world is just beginning to, in awe to realize that over 30 million Africans were transported across the Atlantic for no other reason than to enslave them to work for nothing under some myth that it was justified on the basis of inferiority. And if anything I achieve, if I've achieved anything now or in the future, if I could be part of that, where people worldwide begin to understand and accept that was wrong and cannot be justified, and that they must ensure that, and the way I, I speak it is that the person who could have been, who could have probably cured cancer, died in a sugar plantation. Because his descendants who could have done it are not here. The person who could have cured cancer today, his ancestors, probably died in a sugar cane plantation.
So that person, male or female, I, they're not here for that. And to me, when we destroy a human being, we're destroying that. Because nobody knows at birth our potential. Nobody knows the potential of anybody at birth. And therefore, the potential of 30 million people, uh, their descendants, that's how I look at it. It's probably never been said like that. The descendants. And you could say it about other people in other parts of the world, but same thing applies. But I'm saying it could apply there too. And that's what we have lost. And therefore, it is not about the sugar and the cotton and the coffee they produced. It's about the people they could have produced. And that cannot be addressed in terms of reparations, giving money back. People are now talking about that. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a little concerned where people think you can pay for that. You can't pay for that. Okay, people can talk about, you know, reparation in terms of scholarships, education. In Glasgow, they've changed the name of the building or they put the new name up. Um, is it McCune-Smith? James McCune Smith building yeah. and therefore you've got the James McCune Smith building and that's named after a black Glasgow student yeah. medical student I think first medical student and that's up on the building that's a form of reparation mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm pleased to see that I'm pleased to know about the scholarship I'm pleased to know that people are trying to do reparation people are talking about money but all that is fine. But what I'd like people to do, they don't have to give a thing. They just have to treat people better today in terms of um, education and opportunity and representation. That's what I would like reparation in, in that to ensure that obstacles which are not relevant or valid or etc should be removed or people should be enlightened of them so they can deal with them themselves and hopefully that we can produce the work and that we can have the children and one of them will have the capacity to say that's what's wrong that's the cure for cancer or any other, look at the fact we had that virus, COVID-19. It tells us we need every brain because the brains we had here weren't capable. <laughs> the brains we had in the world were not capable of doing very much for two years. And it has left a lot of legacies. When you think that we with our educational capacity in science, that we were walking around wringing our hands because a lot of people didn't know what to do. Didn't know what to do. 
Therefore, we need every brain. We need to educate every brain in the hope that we're going to produce the individuals who will help us. Because if we've got COVID and can't do anything about it, our problem is our educational potential. Going to the moon is easy. It's mechanical. We can set a rocket and get there. But we couldn't handle COVID. <laughs> See, the, because it's innovative thinking. It's new thinking. And we need people. So for the future, I just hope we can ensure that we educate as many people as possible so that our time here, whether it's we can deal with climate change or we can deal with any new um, uh, dangers like that. And that um, if what I'm saying and what I'm doing motivate, pe you know, motivate people to do better, then I hope I probably can't do anything myself <laughs> in terms of the science and the technology and the whatever. But I'm thinking of what I've been through and what I've seen. And I look at things like COVID or climate and I say we need new brains mm -hmm. to try and solve those problems. Mobile phones and apps and stuff we are we can do but what we're doing is developing the technology nobody's gonna nobody will is gonna come up tomorrow with a new concept like the mobile phone the new concept like you know the the, the, the capacity to go to the moon what I'm saying we need those and COVID requires those if another virus comes which is worse than COVID, then we have, we're in trouble again, so to speak. And the first thing they're going to tell us to wear a mask. <clears throat> we should be able to say, we've got a new virus and we can deal with it in a week <clears throat> because we know what to do. That's what I hope for the future, that we will have the capacity to deal with anything that will affect humanity and that's what I hope for for the future and we need to educate everybody um, because we don't know the capacity of any human brain at birth How did we get to look this good at 83? Good at 83? Uh, <clears throat> well, I don't know how good I look. But <laughs> um, I think what it is, is um, it's my mother's genes. <laughs> I think that's what it is. I think when she was, you know, ill and, and, and before, just before she passed away, we used to have discussion with her. And, you know, th that lady was lying there. She never had a wrinkle in her face at 86 so it must be genetics <laughs> so I, I i owe everything to her even the way i look at 83 <laughs> it's her doing <laughs> and as far as she said you know and i've mentioned it before where when you know she did her views of me and you've got a photo of her there and she when anybody asked her about me 
and she was she lived in Haringey. And when you've heard of Bernie Grant, he's a p black politician who did a lot for black people in Tottenham. He was one of the first black MPs. And um, but he was a student in Edinburgh. A lot of people don't know that. So black activists or real black activists, they know all have heard of Bernie. But he was a student in Edinburgh. And I met him and we discussed it and he went down to London. Um, again, it's pure chance. Um, we met in a restaurant in Edinburgh, but he was at the Harriet Ward. So when I say that to activists in London, they say, Bernie Grant in Scotland. <laughs> you know, you know, sort of relationship. If you said he was from Manchester or Birmingham, perfect. But he was a student in Scotland at the Harriet Ward. And I sent him to London and he went and he met my mum. Um, because he went down to Haringey and he became MP of Haringey and was having the riots with the police and stuff, the Tottenham riots, which changed the whole attitude. The relationship improved it, in fact. And um, so my mother knows people like him. And, and, and of course, when her neighbour, when she came to Scotland to see me when I got a Doctor of Science degree and she went back <coughs> and I went with her and I'm up at the window listening to her, talking to her neighbour. In fact, her neighbour was Mrs. Pennycook. <laughs> <laughs> but it's spelled a different way. It's P-E-N-N-Y-C-O-O-K. And I'm living in Pennycook. <laughs> but it's P-E-N-I-C-U-I-K, Pennycook. So the same name. And both names apply. So the fact that I'm here is one that is strange. <laughs> that, so my mum is talking to Mrs. Pennycook. And Mrs. Pennycook is saying to her, Miss Ivy, because we're Saudis, Jamaican speak, Miss Ivy, what's your son doing in Scotland? And my mother would say, oh, my son. Oh, he's at school. <laughs> <laughs> I was professor then. <laughs> oh, you know. Um, uh, um, I, I maybe senior lecturer in 85. Yeah. He's, um, uh, 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 he's at school. And then, even later, I was still at school when I was professor. And then she said, well, what's his purpose in life, Miss Ivy? You know, your son doing all these things in Scotland. She said, well, he's just God's vehicle. He's just doing what God tells him to do. So I've never achieved anything. <laughs> I'm on instructions. <laughs> but she was a woman who went to the Greek Orthodox Church up the road. <laughs> And the Greeks used to come down and say to me, who is this woman? Is she your relation? And I said, well, what's, what's the matter? And they said, well, she comes to our church. That's the Greek Orthodox Church. My mother doesn't speak Greek. <laughs> She's in the church. And when I said to my mother, why did you go to the, the church? She says it's closer than the other one. <laughs> <laughs> the, fact, the fact that it was a Greek church meant nothing to her. <laughs> and that's what is the closeness that mattered. So that's my background. I come from a mother like that and my aunts. So I don't have this you know, it's anything to defend what I call cultural elitism. 
but what they had was resilience mm -hmm. that my mom could she went to her work she worked in the east end of london and she worked as a dress finisher and she worked and worked until she got ill never took a day off never took a holiday she worked what they call holiday pay that meant you don't take your holiday you go to work and got paid and she reg they regarded and her regarded that as a tremendous privilege mm -hmm. not taking a holiday working your holiday and getting paid that's what real windrush is about mm. and uh, and that's the resilience which i hope i've inherited the responsibility and that in fact gives me the the, the so-called drive and and the fact that you know i'm not bothered from the man in the car park to the people who run the country, they don't make any difference to me. The fact is, as long as I'm thinking, the, doing the best I can, they don't bother me. So, you know, so as far as for the future, I just hope every race, and I don't believe in the word race, mm -hmm. that every person in our community I will put it that way, that every person in our community is given the education. That's what we say, what's my final hope? That everybody is educated to the best of their ability. And that we educate everybody because we need every brain to provide us with the protection we need when we conf we're confronted with problems like COVID that we have to be ready for that mm. and therefore we've got to educate everybody because we do not know the capacity of any human being out there not one and thus every brain that we can educate to ensure that our, our humanity progresses and not suffer in any way. We need to educate. We can't exclude one person. So racism is out. Classism is out. Gender prejudice is out. Yeah. All those prejudice against anybody, any human being, is out. Yeah. And we've got to get that. We've got to get used to it. We can't make anybody. You know, you and I have been in the making since this world began. Mm. That's the importance of your life. We've been in the making from the world began. And when somebody murders you or take your life away, they're behaving like God because they're stopping something that has been going on from the world began and thus destroying the lives of the enslaved was wrong they had no right to even think of that you cannot make up any excuses for that we need the money or they, they're not human or they're inferior people it's just nonsense and thus that's my hope 
that we ensure that every brain is educated to the best of our capacity because that's what we need. <laughs> okay. And thank you for this podcast. Okay, it's thank you very much. And you're most welcome, and I, I really admire what you're doing, and you are the voice, you're getting to the public, and I tell other media people that, that you don't realise what important what you're going to do is, because you're getting across to the public information which they probably hadn't even thought of, the relationship between things, which I've had 83 years to, 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 to think about. So thank you very much and safe trip home.